Right. Well, that's a really good question, and it's actually something that I struggle with sometimes, you know, because we do have this uh, taboo, you know, towards mental health. But the thing is, is I think that if they're a religious person, um, the Qur'an is filled with the ideas of tazkiyah and tasfiyah of the nafs, okay? Um, our history and our uh, um, ilm al-nafs has been prevalent in our tradition, okay? Um, and of course, the, the, the fundamental principle of we all accept that al-kamalu lillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one who is perfect. No human being, inshallah, in their right mind, will ever say, I am perfect and I don't need anything to, to change or grow. No one can really say that without you being really worried about their state. Right? And so we trust in the good of people. This is one thing Islam teaches us. We trust in the inner good of one another. So we try to soften their heart. And we try to say, are you perfect, Sidi? Of course not. So maybe there could be some use to this. Right? You might get some help. Uh, look at it as kind of what we talked about today. Just see it as like if he's a tech guy. right? It's like your mind is like software and you need to update it from time to time. You can't be operating on 1998 right? software. It's 2015. Right? So we have to, um, we have to you know, use the approaches that work best for the person. I mean, that's my general advice. But it's also, of course, case to case. Was that helpful? So, so? So, tell me more about your case. One part of the question is that the person who is coming to the second he has the realization that I have a problem and I need to fix it. So, isn't that half of the cases already solved? Because that's the most difficult thing to realize that I have a problem. Right. The first step to recovery is to acknowledge that you have a problem, right? Or an issue. Um, I also don't like to necessarily look at it as it's a problem that needs to be fixed. Because human beings are not, you know, contrary to my analogy today, we're not, we're not really like computers, right? There is a lot more going on, right? There's emotions, there's dreams, there's imagination, there's the spirit, there's the heart, there's the body and the mind, okay? We are an integrated being. So, yes, um, the first step to healing is to recognize I could use healing, right? And we all could, by Allah, right? Even the way I like to look at it is, you're not necessarily a problem, but maybe you just want some optimization, right? Um, we often hear like this concept of, in traditional psychotherapy, it's the idea of, I'm going to go see a shrink. Because what a shrink does is he tries to narrow down what is the root cause of your problem or your personality issues, and he shrinks it down to, okay, here it is, this is it. But counseling is actually... The opposite, it's about expanding, right? It's about opening up and unfolding the life story and understanding the events that have shaped you as a person. And then when you recognize and understand why you are the way you are and who you are, that gives you empowerment and that leads to optimization. So if you want to um, send them my way, I can pitch it. <laughs> uh, yes, please. Yeah, I mean, classically, a psychoanalyst, even though I do psychoanalysis, which basically means that you're trying to understand um, how your past influences your present, 
that's really what psychoanalysis is all about, or psychotherapy, right? Um, and so counseling as a field in psychology emerged in the 70s, and it kind of came out of this con the school of thought of called humanistic psychology, which is basically, it's very aligned with a lot of Islamic principles. It's basically aligned with the idea that humans are good by nature. They have uh, an incredible potential to grow and heal, and we're very adaptable, and we can actually overcome uh, a lot. So the field of counseling emerged from this kind of school of thought of, let's not make it about you're a problem, and we want to only focus on the you know, illnesses, but rather let's expand and focus on all the good in the human being and use those powers to work on the current, the limitations. Is that clear? Precisely, and it's also called, there's also that field of positive psychology, right? So there's different schools of thought. Yes, please. I'm just a question. You were saying that it's a lot important to keep it journal, and that people need to do that more aware of their thoughts because they're tracking. So if, if I want to start doing that or anyone else, what exactly should you be doing? Like, why? You write whatever you want. Anything? Absolutely. Because that's almost a type of self-therapy. Because one of the things that a psychologist does is he, he or she facilitates for you, for your soul to open up, right? You know, the, the, like we encourage you, okay? Courage comes from the Latin word to mean to have heart, right? So encourage is like, I'm trying to help you as a human being have heart. In other words, be courageous and vulnerable within yourself. Because that's, a lot of us, we, have, we struggle with that, right? We're not able to go into that deep space of self-awareness. And this is why I mentioned the ayah with Muhammad, right? And did the example. Because I really believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding you and I that I know what's going on for you. You can't even hide it from yourself. Or at least you shouldn't be, right? And that's what ikhlas is too, right? Sincerity comes from the word khalasa, which means to be unmixed, pure, exclusive, in your intentionality. That's what sincere means. That's why when someone's doing something for other than the real reason, Allah, sincerity could be lacking. Right? So if I'm trying to show that I'm a type of person because I want to be seen by a certain way by, of, by people, I'm not actually being sincere to myself. Right? And that, it doesn't sit well with the soul. See, this is the beautiful inner mechanism that I really believe is in all of us, is that the ego is the constructed identity or notion of the self. But your ruh, the part of you that gives you life, it knows Allah better than anything else. And it actually knows you too, right? This is why we have du'as like, save me from myself. It's like, what does that mean? It means save me from my very self that I'm not even aware of, right? The darkness within my own soul that I, I don't bother looking at. Right? Cause, and this is why we have what's called inner uh, tension. It's like when the ego wants something or does something, but the ruh knows you shouldn't be doing it. Right? If, if the ruh wasn't there, then why would we have inner tension? It's like, so what? Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? But why is there this inner tension? Because there's a part of you that always knows what's right. And this goes back also to the ayat in the Quran, Alastu Birabbikum, am I not your Lord? When Allah had all of us in this room and everyone that ever existed, we testify to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So and this is a blueprint in all of us. So we know better, right? 
in a deep place. We know better. And this is how it all kind of comes together with spirituality and psychology. Yes, please. I, I, don't, I don't think there is one. No, I know, but I don't, I don't believe in the categories like that. Like, I don't believe, like, okay, everyone shouldn't be an authority. No, because author, having authoritative parenthood is actually not a bad thing. It all depends on how you do it. Right? Because, again, it all comes down to, here's the key to existence, guys. I'm going to give it to you for free. It all comes down to interpretation. Wallahi. It all comes down to uh, ISIS. Guess what? They call themselves Muslim. You call yourself Muslim. They follow the Quran, you follow the Quran, right? They grow beards and their women wear hijab, you grow beards and your women wear hijab. They pray five times a day, you pray five times a day. But what's different? Interpretation. Okay? So I believe that systems of thought or methodologies are there to be accessed based on who you are and what works for you. Okay? And interpretation is really the, the, the essence of, of experience, right? Because the same person can take a tradition and create very different results than somebody over here. So authoritative parents in house A may be doing a great job, right? Their parents are disciplined, they're listening to them, A, B, and C. But on the other end, you have authoritative parents over here, but the way they're delivering is causing negative responses and destruction. So that's my answer. Yes, please. Trauma that is caused uh, during childhood uh, maybe has effect on some much later in life, right? So um, the way to resolve that is to go back to the trauma, go back to the event, what caused it maybe, and um, try to overcome it, right? But what if the trauma was caused in the childhood and you have a memory of the event, but the effects remain. So how would you trace back to what is causing this particular behavior? Well, that's very difficult to do alone. That's why psychotherapy is very helpful, because it's like you basically start peeling away layers, and whether you... Most of the time, we don't think... Like, I've seen this happen a lot, where a client will basically start unraveling their life story and their inner narrative... And then memories that they repressed, which is a defense mechanism we all use, we basically it's when something affects us or we don't like it, and we basically shove it deep down inside because we don't want to face it, but that thing is still bubbling and affecting our being. Okay? So through those types of spaces where you're becoming more self-aware, unfolding your inner self, eventually those things will give rise because they're alive in you. They didn't really go away. It's still there. You're just choosing not to face it, right? And again, this is the amazing thing. And some theories in neuroscience, they say every single moment you've ever lived, it's recorded in your brain. You just aren't focused on it, right? In fact, this is one of the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that your awareness right now, your, what's, on, what's called the surface of your mind, is always just a very small percentage of everything you've ever experienced. Because imagine if everything you've ever experienced was on the surface of your mind. You'd go crazy, you'd explode. Right? From the first time you scraped your knee at age seven to the fight you had last week with your boss to, you know, it's, it's impossible. So it's actually rahma that it basically sinks down below and is stored in like a file cabinet. And this is what we call the unconscious. Right? Um, uh, another analogy to look at it, it's kind of like an iceberg. 
A glacier, sorry. Right? So we only see the top of a glacier. I got it, honey, I got it. We only see the top of a glacier. But at the bottom of the surface of the water is a huge, huge piece of ice. Right? That is the root of what you see on top. And that's kind of like what the personality is. It's like you have all this stuff going on, the automatic mind, and what's at the top is what you're currently using as the engaged mind. But you can also use the analytical mind when you switch into the analytical mode to look down and see what's going on down here, rearrange stuff, and then create a whole new uh, mechanics, if you will, or dynamic to how you are. So what would be a good first step for that? If I wanted to do it, what would you recommend? To release repression? Yes. Probably to, probably to see you know one of our sisters in the back. <laughs> can help you with that. We have a couple of sisters that can do that. All depends on the person and the severity of the trauma and everything else and how self-aware they already are. You know what I mean? Like some people are very, very, very blocked. You know? Very blocked. Um, others are already, like I've met some people, mashallah, they do have to work for me. Because they're so, they're very, in, in you know, they're very engaged with themselves. And they actually just bring out the different possibilities or options that they think is going on for them. And then we sit with that together, right? And then there's others, it's just so hard to even go beyond like, so tell me more about your relationship with your mother. Oh, it was fine. It was fine. Really? Can you say more about that? Yeah, just not much more to say. Like, okay, how about your father? What, what, how is, how's your relationship with him? Ah, it was okay. Right? It's just so hard to get it out. But over time, that's the other aspect that's important in the helping relationship is, of course somebody needs to feel trust, feel safety. So usually the first few sessions, you're just trying to build that trust with the person and safety. Because not everyone's going to just sit down and let it out. I've had people like that. You know, God bless them. They sit down and they're like, all right, man, here's what's going on for me. Yeah, boom, 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 right? It's like, well, mashallah, you know, let's work with this. Right? We're going to go far. And some clients, mashallah, they actually, uh, they make much more progress in a month than another person does in six months. So it all depends. Yes, please. So um, one person just mentioned about, like, repressed memories. Yes. How do you know, like, you know, whether you have repressed memories or not? Like, what if I question myself now? <laughs> I think it's safe to say that we all have some level of repression right? because it's, it's a natural mechanism it's not necessarily um, a bad thing right kind of like the automatic mind like the automatic mind is not a bad thing it can be if most of its content is negative and like, like there are people like that, right? It's like they're always negative. Like, subhanAllah, yaqi, you can't find any shukr in your life. He's always negative. It's because his automatic default mo mode is like filled with bad experiences. And that's his story or her story, you know? So I think everyone has some repression. Um, others, maybe more, again, it's, it's always a, a range. Yes, please. What if you have whatever the opposite of repression is? Like everything is always there. Like, what? What? I guess, what is the opposite sort of response to that? I don't know. Expression. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not really getting your question. Basically, are you saying, is it possible to have everything on your mind all the time? Is, would you describe the feeling as overthinking? Yeah. Okay, so we mentioned the analytical mind, or the intentional mind, is one of the systems which we use to solve problems, understand things, reflect, observe, plan, etc. Right? Now, any, too much of anything isn't good. Okay? So over-analysis, overthinking, and I fall into this myself. Why? Because my automatic mind has also become in a mode where I am constantly trying to engage and analyze people. Like, like every week, hours a week, that's my mode. So my automatic mind is overthinking. Like it might take me a little too long to decide like what kind of pizza I want, <laughs> right? And that's not good. But I'm overthinking because that's become part of my natural mode, okay? So one of the things I try to do is, of course, recognize that, you know, like, okay, it shouldn't take me this long to decide, you know, what I'm going to eat right now. Um, and what's good is, like, if you have some, you know, uh, friends or family members, they can give you that feedback when they notice you're going into it. Because, again, you're basically in this cycle. So if you have someone else and, and slow it down or stop it for you and be like, you know, sister, you don't need to take that long. Or you're overthinking things. Just let's go, you know. And then you go. And the more often you do that, uh, the more you start to change the experience and how you use your brain. But, again, it all depends on the person. You know, that's just my general advice. Well, yeah, and you know what? I think working with a therapist or a psychologist or a counselor or anybody where there's that type of intimate relationship, you also have to have a good connection with the person or a good chemistry, right? Like not everybody you want to work with is going to be a good fit, especially when it comes to that kind of deeper personal work, you see? So it might, it might also be the nature of your professional relationship with your helper. I don't know. Could be. Like, I've met people, they're like, yeah, I, w I was in therapy for three months, but I didn't, it wasn't working for me. Like, that, it wasn't helping, you know. But we, had a, we were able to make better progress together, you know. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there are other clients that, you know, it's more difficult for us to work together because of just who they are, you know. And sometimes I recommend them to try someone else. So it's not always like, oh, as soon as I go to any therapist I go to, khalas, I'm going to you know, explode with nude and self-awareness and everything's going to unfold before my eyes. Not always the case. You know? So maybe uh, that could be one thing to consider. I mean, I like being old school when it comes to this stuff. So I think writing is a little more engaging. Right? There's something about the pen and the paper um, than just tuk, 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 right? It's a very different experience because maybe you associate computers, now we associate computers with work and emails and all this stuff. So a journal is something like quiet, it's quieter. And a journal can be something you can do anywhere. Just like a small book, you know? Go to the lake or a cafe or sit somewhere, you know, and just see what happens, start writing. L like literally start by writing, I don't know what to write about. You know, like, just start anything. There's no right or wrong answers. It's just about you putting, trying to put yourself on a page, trying to objectify more your inner narrative, and there can be a lot of self-healing in that. For some people, not for everybody. Right? Yes, uh, sister, we had a question here.
Why should they read uh, Quran and, and pray Fajr? Why should they pray and, and read Quran? Huh? Is that a good enough motivator for a seven-year-old? No, I'm just asking because I, 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 I want to get to, you know... Sure, okay. But still, even so, right? Like, what does that mean? It's an obligation. Like, why, why, why are we saying it's an obligation? Okay, where? No, no, no. I'm not trying to be uh, rude. I'm, I'm, I honestly want to open up the subject because it's a very common thing, right? We focus so much on what you have to do, right? So my question is, why do we think we have to do it? Because, again... I agree with you. Allah commands us to pray, right? I, I agree with you. But how does that, what does that mean if Allah doesn't need the prayer? What does that really mean? Because kids are smart, right? You have to pray. Okay, but mom, you said Allah is, you know, He doesn't need anything. So why do I have to get up at Fajr and worship Him? He doesn't need me. Huh? <laughs> See? So I'm on to something, right? <laughs> and, and it's a longer discussion, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm opening it up because, you know, we all care for our deen, we care for our family, I get it. But we have to, as adults, I think we have um, accepted and inherited a lot of beliefs, and we haven't actually done deeper research and understand spiritually why we even do what we do. We do, you know what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doesn't He complain about the, the Quraysh? Uh, we do what our fathers did. Sah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes that that's not a good trait. Wallahi, even if you're Muslim, it's not a, a, acceptable for you to say, my parents were Muslim, so I'm Muslim too. Khalas, I don't have to think or research or learn or develop any of that. I just do what my fathers did. Ghalat, wrong. It's also wrong. You have to be Muslim by choice, not by chance. Because tomorrow, when they go to college and they leave off, they probably they may not be Muslim because they don't know. Well, my next goal, inshallah, and hopefully with the help of uh, ICE with MCA, is I honestly I want to offer uh, an Islamic psychology class. Because I believe that there has to be an integration between how the human thinks and is motivated and how our mind and our heart works and how the religion can be implemented into that. In other words, the why questions, right? Why do we do what we do? Okay? Um, because, let's be honest, all of us here, it's unlikely that we did like thorough research and, and figured out, like, why do we pray two rakahs, then four, then... You know, four, then three, then four. Have you ever asked me a question? You know, oh, we all, of course, the Prophet taught us that. Really? Where? Show me exactly where it was said like this. Because it's not in the Quran, right? So, and I'm not, again, I'm not questioning the tradition, but I am, right? Because I'm basically trying to bring to light is we have to think deeper about these things. And we also have to put in our own effort. Because it doesn't look good if you're a mom or your dad and you say, you have to do this. And then your son or, or your daughter, they grow up and mashallah, they're aqil now, they have more intellect and they ask a very good hard question. You don't have the answer. 
Guess how that's going to make you look? And more importantly, how they're going to feel like this religion that you're trying to make me do, it doesn't add up. And slowly their faith, their attachment, their connection withers away. And meanwhile, on top of it, I still also, my life is boring and I don't get to have fun. And everyone around me is having a great time. And I'm not allowed to touch or look or hang out. And all I'm yelled at for is because I didn't pray Fajr. Yani, this is what's going on, right? It's not an easy story. But, it's a, but it is a story that we're helping write as parents. So, you know, and again, it's a very big subject. But um, what I'll leave you with is we have to take that responsibility and that sincerity to ask why. And to strengthen our own iman and faith. It's not enough to just inherit it. My parents did it like this, so we do it too. And I make you do it too. Right? And start with, you think, as a mother. Why are you telling your parents, kids, they have to pray if Allah doesn't need his prayer? If you can't answer that question for yourself, then maybe it's a little too soon to make your kid do it. Because, again, I don't, I, I just want to say, because, no, so, seriously, because some people might think, oh, what is this guy saying? Let's just look at the prophetic example. Huh? For 10, 11, 12 years, there was no prayer. True or not true? No prayer. It was all about iman, love of Allah, social change, akhlaq, consciousness. That's, that's it. Salah came after these people were transformed to anchor them and keep their spirituality organized. We do the opposite. We say, do this, do all the rituals, but we don't teach them what were the substance. We say, we want to see the eggshell, but we don't give them any of the yolk. No nutrients, no color, no flavor. Okay, fine. Allah And then they're just doing it for you. They're not doing it for Allah. Right? So we're doing the opposite. Sometimes, not everybody, but some of us, we do the opposite. Ah. So, how uh, we need to think about, you know, reapproaching and using the example. And I don't believe, like, you know, there's, you know, converts that I know and stuff like that. It's like, as soon as they take shahada, you can't expect them to be praying five times a day, you know. MashaAllah, if you can do it, Allah Akbar, you know, may Allah increase you. But take it easy. Not everyone is going to grow in the same way. And that includes your children. Some children, mashallah, they're like, I'm down with this, right? I want to pray with Baba. Others, they're going to question and be curious and be like, why? doesn't make sense. You know? And that's sometimes Allah's way of saying to you, you need to reassess your own iman. Because if your kid's giving you feedback and calling you out, then that means that maybe we have to grow too. Like we said, Allah's perfect. You always have room to grow. Even if you're an adult and you have gray hair and you went to Harvard, there's still stuff you're going to learn. So maybe it's Allah's way of reminding us that we always keep growing, inshallah, and Allah knows best. Right. So basically, uh, developing a perspective of gratitude no matter what. And it's true. I mean, gratitude is... I mean, it's one of our saving graces as a species. You know, finding shukr. Um... And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says, if you try to count the an'am, you can't, really. And uh, we can start with something as simple as just the body, how your body works, right? Like there are people, for example, their, their eyes don't produce natural tears. Like what you and I take for granted, you've been sitting here blinking all night. Some people literally are dropping drops all day. 
Some people can't hold their bathroom. They can't. The muscles in the area, just everything's out. They have to live with a diaper, right? So some people, yeah, I mean, there's so many things, complications that can go wrong. I mean, you have billions of cells and all kinds of organs working together just to keep you functioning and sitting here without feeling pain. Now you take that for granted. You don't think about it, right? So there really is a lot of, and it's like when you start thinking on that level of deep reflection and sincerity and gratitude, wallahi, the like, you know, the biology test next Friday, you're just like, dude, if that's my biggest problem, alhamdulillah, right? So that's very powerful. Okay, we'll take one or two more, and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, and then I also would request that, um, you know, if you guys have personal stuff you want to talk about, just please take my card and get in touch with me. I, I don't have time to stay and talk with people. I have a very early appointment in the morning, so I would appreciate that courtesy. Yes, please. One thing with what you mentioned, and I have experienced what with my uh, when you start writing about yourself, mm -hmm. sometimes you go into that automatic mind and you just write without thinking. Right. And when you later read it, you get shocked that is it me? Subhanallah. So that that's something which you mentioned and I think everybody that's something which I have personally experienced. MashaAllah. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yes, please. <coughs> Allah doesn't need our prayers, so basically we need it. Yeah. So the punishment that comes from not worshipping, is it right to say that it's self-inflicting punishment? Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does say in the Quran, whenever you transgress, you're only oppressing yourself. Right? So, I mean, again, I'm not a mufassir, okay? And I'm not, I'm, I'm not a scholar, I'm not an imam of Islam. I'm a psychologist and I'm a student <clears throat> of knowledge. That's all I got for you. Okay, I'm just a guy who's sharing his opinion, okay? But, you know, I think that um, the language of the Qur'an is very powerful, and we shouldn't always limit it to just a literal understanding of things, okay? So, for instance, um, anyone here ever had somebody, you know, break their heart or really hurt them personally, right? Doesn't it burn? It burns, right? You feel... Does, has anyone here had so much pressure and stress in their life that it felt like there was a mountain on their shoulders? Right? We use these expressions to describe feelings and states. Right? But it's not like, oh, dude, I saw Amir the other day. The guy had a mountain on his back. Did you see that? Right? No. But he felt that way. Right? Or I'm burning inside. I'm in so much pain. I can't take it. I'm on fire. Okay? So... We have to understand that, you know, these descriptions, yes, they're very powerful, okay? But sometimes they are also reflections of what we are doing to ourselves. So in a way, it's almost like Jannah and Nod and these types of things. You can almost look at it as it's going to be an amplification of what you're already doing. Because who are the people that Allah describes are going to be in hell? They have very specific uh, descriptions. I'm sorry, it's not somebody who like is missing prayer necessarily. It's not Allah never says in the Quran, if you miss prayer, salah, you're gonna go to hell forever. It's not it's not there. He talks about Pharaoh and Thamud and Abu Lahab, and like these are very specific yani, evil people. Right? We have to be very clear about this. You can't just throw the hell card around, especially with your kids. You don't know. Huh? So we have to be we have to engage with the Qur'an and really be um, 
we just have to know the divine conversation better, right? Because there's nothing, there's nothing that says that. Like, you're going to go to hell if you don't pray. That's up to Allah, okay, what He wants to do. And everyone has their journey, okay? It's not like everyone has to be perfect and exactly the same, because you're not going to be perfect. And guess what? You're also not going to go to Jannah based on your deeds. We know this, right? You're not. You can't earn Jannah. Allah gives you Jannah as a gift. Right? You never get to a point you're like, yeah, mashallah, check out my account, bro. I got so many points, you know, sunnah and fasting. I've got a beard. I even wore sunnah for three years straight, you know, the thing and that. No, no disrespect to anyone who, who does that. But my point is, is this uh, mentality of I quantify my spirituality, it's not going to work. Because you don't know what Allah even records for you and how much something you didn't think was a big deal. Maybe that's the thing that saves you. Because again, we have so many examples. We have a prostitute who gave a dog water from her shoe because she was thirsty and saw the dog was thirsty and Allah forgave her. The whole life, she was doing all that stuff for years and Allah forgave her from this. And then there's also a woman who locked up a cat and was so brutal to just a, an animal, a cat, that most of us in our countries, just like whatever, we kick them and run them over if we, if we need to get, pull up to khutbah, right? And then and Allah forgave the uh, punished the woman forever, right? Or not forever, but He sent her. To, we know that she was, you know, not in a good place. So you don't know, and that's why we can't throw these cards around. You can't. You have to be very, very, very uh, humble and, and and have taqwa, and and that's where you have fear of Allah, right? It's not instilling fear of Allah in others. It's you being afraid of Allah yourself that you're gonna transgress. Because we have so many different examples where you basically, there's no clear um, manual exactly, right? Because the, the Prophet also said, there's the guy who memorized Quran and led prayer and had a great voice and it could be anybody that you've prayed behind. You're like, oh, mashallah, this guy is awesome. And the Prophet says he did it for to show off and he's going to get punished. Or the warrior that fought in jihad and defended his land in Jerusalem and blah, blah, blah. He did it for his own glory. And he will be punished, right? And so on and so forth. Okay? So we have to be very, very careful about, you know, how we throw this stuff around. Yes? So normally, um, when we teach our children, we, um, like, for worldly goods, right? You gotta go to school to learn, or else you'll fail in life, stuff like that. I mean, for everything we say, do it for yourself. But when it comes to being, we say, do it for Allah. And we take it for granted. So it's uh, if we teach that it's a lot and everything is for themselves rather than uh, it's the other way we teach them. I think that's one of the things that we have to think about. Yeah, and that's a great point. And the last thing I'll close on is um, last thing I'll close on. Sorry, I'm laughing at my wife. She looks like she's like signaling an airplane to land. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up because um, I'm tired too. The last thing I wanted to point out though is one thing I've discovered in my own personal journey with the religion is that everything that you do for Allah, it's inclusive of benefiting you, right? Like when you do things for the sake of Allah, you follow? You, you get your own, like you feel, I mean, and this is a, I think one of the beauties and rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa is he's made because you're naturally good, He's made it that when you do good, there's an internal reward mechanism, right? Like we feel good when we do some, some, something with Ihsan. 
right? You feel good when you see, like, my wallet fell and you come after me. Hey, Brother Kareem, you dropped your wallet. Oh, thank you, Akhi. It was such a beautiful thing that you did. And you feel good, right? When you smile to somebody and they smile back, it feels good. Allah made it so that good things feel good. And that doesn't mean you're being selfish. It's actually Allah trying to show you that this is the, the, the natural reality of things, right? And that's why when we do things that are bad, we feel bad. And when we witness something that's bad, it's not a good feeling. So it's one of, it's one of the mercies of God. Because some atheists say, oh, you guys just do good things because you want a reward from God, right? It's like basically you're just doing it to get something out of it, an incentive, right? But they, don't, they, fail, they fail to see that part where, no, you also you feel good because it's good in and of itself. It's not just because I want Jannah or just because Allah tells me to do it. It actually feels good. Right? And it's aligned with the sacred word. So I'm going to close with that. And the last thing I want to...